Let's pray, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for breathing forth the words of eternal life to us in Holy Scripture. And we pray that we would receive the truth of these passages with faith and love, lay them up on our hearts, and practice them in our lives. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. We have two scripture readings this morning. One about deacons first, and then one about elders, because we're looking at elder and deacon vows, and hopefully you got a handout there in the uh, a foyer next to the bulletin. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 is our first scripture reading, and then we'll look over at Acts 20 here in just a moment. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 is our first scripture reading. This is God's word. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And then turn over to Acts 20. Acts 20, verse 28 to 31. Acts 20, verses 28 to 31. Here's Paul's exhortation to the elders of the church at Ephesus. This is a key passage about elders. Acts 20, verses 28 to 31. This is God's word. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. May God bless the reading of his holy word. We now come to the vows that are taken by elders and deacons when they are ordained after they're nominated and then elected at a congregational meeting by voting by a show of hands. And they're set apart and have hands laid upon them and are ordained to the office of elder or to the office of deacon. Elders and deacons in our book of church order take the exact same vows. The the vows they take are identical. It's important to remember that this message I'm preaching to you this morning is not primarily about the duties of elders or the duties of deacons, although we will touch on those a little bit. This message is about the promises, the promises that elders and deacons make if they accept their nomination and the congregation then elects them. Members of churches promise to be in submission to their elders and to help and encourage their deacons in the offices that they have elected them to execute for them in their churches. And in my message to you this morning, we're going to look at the biblical basis for each of the six vows that elders and deacons make when they're ordained to those offices and those sacred tasks And then we're going to look at one vow that the whole congregation makes to their elders and deacons. So let's go ahead and walk through it there. Hopefully you've got a handout. If not, I'll I'll be reading it to you. But vow number one that all elders and deacons take. Number one, 
Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as originally given to be the inerrant word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Now the word of God says, 2 Timothy 3, 14, familiar passage. Paul says to Timothy, one of the last things he wrote before he was beheaded and died, he said, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Officers of local churches, be they deacons or elders, are Bible men first and foremost. They love the Word of God, the Bible. They read it every day. When they hear departures from it, they cringe and react with horror in their hearts. They're all like Jay Gresham Machen in his response to liberalism's mockery of the Bible. They stand their ground and they fight for the truth. They do not see departures from biblical authority and biblical doctrine and think, well, I'm sure that so-and-so has really good reasons for thinking that the virgin birth of Christ didn't actually happen, but that's just one theory of it. But they're such nice people, and they do so much good for the church. No, none of that. They're not easily led astray like that and by such simplistic thinking. Elders and deacons are, first and foremost, Christians. They're Christians. As Christians, they believe the Bible is true. They're disciples of Christ. They're sheep of the Lord's pasture. They understand exactly what Jesus is talking about. When he told his enemies and those that did not believe in him, he he told them, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. So an elder and a deacon are first and foremost the sheep of Christ. In John 10 verse 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Elders and deacons are first and foremost Christians who hear the voice of their shepherd speaking in one and only one place, and that's in Scripture. The sheep of Christ hear the voice of Christ in Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. That's not just a slogan for iPhone covers and bumper stickers and Bible jackets. That's a way of life. Solo Scriptura is a way of life. There's no other source of the very words of God outside of Scripture. Officers in the church, first and foremost, believe that. They believe to be true whatsoever is revealed by God in the pages of Scripture. They rejoice in the Bible's promises. They tremble at the Bible's threatenings. And they act differently when Scripture corrects their behavior. Because their ultimate trust is in the Bible, their only trust for going to heaven is in Christ. They put no confidence in the flesh, make no boast except in the Lord Jesus. After writing the most heated, the most passionate letter in the entire New Testament, Galatians, Paul summarized so well what the only thing is that a Christian knows he can ever boast about before God. Galatians 6.14 But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because elders and deacons are Bible men, they are gospel men too. Their greatest zeal is for Jesus to receive all of the glory and the salvation of sinners, 
especially their own. It is their joy to swear that they believe the Bible as it was originally given to be the inerrant word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. So that's the first vow. The second one, do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church as being a faithful, though fallible summary of the doctrine taught in the Holy Scripture? And do you further promise... That if at any time you find yourself out of accord with this summary, such that you no longer subscribe without reservation to the doctrinal points of each paragraph of the confession and each answer of the catechisms, you will, of your own initiative, make known to your session the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of this ordination vow. That's a pretty serious vow, isn't it? It's one thing to... Say to someone, here's what I believe, and you just hand them a Bible. You want to know what I believe? Here's the Bible. But the Bible's a pretty big book, isn't it? While every Christian has the right and the duty to interpret Scripture, no one has the right to misinterpret Scripture. And all of us have benefited greatly throughout the course of our entire lives from the great men and women of God who have gone before us in the faith. A lot of study, a lot of reflection, a lot of very hard spade work has gone into studying, meditating upon, defending, systematizing the great doctrines of the Bible. Why do we have such a detailed doctrinal statement, this, this detailed confession of faith, and a, a larger catechism with 196 questions and answers? A.A. Hodge, the great Princeton theologian, wrote an excellent commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith. I, I highly recommend it as a worthy addition to anyone's library. In the introduction to that book, he wrote a little chapter called um, A Short History of Creeds and Confessions. If you have that book, please read it. Read that. He said this. While, however, the scriptures are from God, the understanding of them belongs to the part of men. Men must interpret to the best of their ability each particular part of scripture separately and then combine all that the scriptures teach upon every subject into a consistent whole and then adjust their teachings upon different subjects in mutual consistency as parts of a harmonious system. Every student of the Bible must do this. Now listen, and all make it obvious that they do it. By the terms they use in their prayers and religious discourse, their conversations, whether they admit or deny the propriety of human creeds and confessions. If they refuse the assistance afforded by the statements of doctrine slowly elaborated and defined by the church, they must make out their own creed by their own unaided wisdom. And I want to warn you about something. If you ever hear someone say, we don't have any creeds, we don't have any confessions, no creed but Christ. Anyone here ever heard that? No creed but Christ? I, I just have news for you. The statement, no creed but Christ, is a creed itself. It's just not very helpful. It's not very detailed. Hodge says, the real question is not, as often pretended, between the word of God and the creed of man, but here's where the real issue. But between the tried and proved faith of the collective body of God's people and the private judgment and the unassisted wisdom of the repudiator of creeds, end quote. There's a great issue of Modern Reformation magazine. I used to subscribe to that years ago and read every, every issue that came cover to cover. They had a, an old issue called Our Debt to Heresy. And they pointed out in that, that magazine how we're indebted to heretics. You know why? Because they forced the church to be clear. They forced the church to define things clearly. 
Paul's doctrine has always done that. It's forced the church to clarify what it means about the various doctrines. Hodge says this, quote, Heretics spring up on all occasions who pervert the scriptures, who exaggerate certain aspects of the truth and deny others equally essential, and thus, in effect, turn the truth of God into a lie. The church is forced, therefore, on the great principle of self-preservation to form such accurate definitions of every particular doctrine misrepresented as shall include the whole truth and exclude all error, and to make such comprehensive expositions of the system of revealed truth as a whole that no one part shall be either unduly diminished or exaggerated, but the true proportion of the whole be preserved, end quote. Elders and deacons especially need to be aware of the doctrines of the faith. Elders, because they teach it, and they're responsible not to mislead people, and they're also responsible to recognize when old heresies pop up. You guys have heard me, you're probably sick of hearing me say, this isn't new, that's not new, this isn't new, we've heard this before, what's being said today from this group is not new, this, was, this came up in the 2nd century, in the 5th century, in the 15th century, you don't hear anything new. Elders especially need to be aware of things like that. Because we're also responsible to protect the sheep of Christ from the army of wolves in sheep's clothing that are constantly ravaging the church, infiltrating the church, and sometimes are even standing in pulpits preaching to the church. And how foolish and arrogant would it be to refuse to learn from the great debates and the great battles that have taken place in the past that our forefathers fought and won? Deacons, because they're hands-on and helping with people in the church, they're going to have plenty of opportunities to have conversations with the people of God about the things of God, about Scripture, about the doctrines of the faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith and the Shorter and Larger Catechisms are, I dare say, the best summary of Christian doctrine ever written by human beings on this planet. Notice the vow says that the elder, the deacon, receives and adopts Listen, the doctrinal points of each paragraph of the confession and each answer of the catechisms. We, we actually added that ourselves in our new denomination. You know why we added that? Because we're trying our best to make sure that guys can't sign our creed with their fingers crossed behind their back. There's a long, sad history to the various ty- types of subscription to the confessional standards. And our new denomination added that Because many men will subscribe to the Westminster Confession in a way that allows them to reject the truth of certain parts of it. Historically, there is strict subscription, which I would hold to, which means that no exceptions to the standards are allowed. In other words, if you disagree with anything in the Westminster Confession or the Shorter or Larger Catechisms, you are ineligible for ordination, period. And then there's good faith subscription, That allows for exceptions if they're not ruled by the presbytery to be out of accord with the fundamentals of the system of doctrine. And then my favorite, I'm not kidding, it's called loose subscription. The problem with any notion of subscription other than subscription, which is what we spelled out in the words of the vow, that you subscribe without reservation to the doctrinal points of each paragraph of the confession and each answer of the catechisms If you don't hold the subscription of that, you really can't hold anyone accountable to what it says. If someone preaches a false gospel and they're in a denomination that allows loose or system subscription, they can always defend themselves successfully by saying, well, I'm just a little more loose than you on that. 
Now, please hear me. It's not that I'm just really tight or that we're just really tight about doctrine and theology and everyone else is just kind of cool and chilled and a little loose about it. It seems that many today are oblivious to just how narrow the gospel really is. Do you guys realize that the Bible still says what it says, whether men are tight or loose, right? The theologian, Dr. Robert Raymond, one of my favorite Reformed theologians, he died not too long ago. He dealt with the criticism, man, you're just so narrow. You're just so narrow. You got so tight. You're so, you're so rigid. You're so rigid about all this theology, all this doctrine stuff. And he wrote this wonderful little paragraph. He says, quote, This argument, however, is aimed not so much at Protestantism's rigidity as it's aimed at Paul's insistence that, one, there's only one gospel. Justification by faith alone and Christ's work alone. Numerous passages cited. Number two, that any other gospel is not the gospel. And that those who teach any other gospel stand under the curse of God. Numerous passages cited. Number four, that those who rely to any degree on their own works for their salvation nullify the grace of God. Romans 11, 5 and 6, Galatians 2, 21, Galatians 5, 2. And they make void the cross of Christ, says Paul. And they become debtors to keep the entire law, Galatians 5, 3. And in becoming such, fall from grace, Galatians 5, 4. That is, place themselves again under the curse of the law. So you know who else was told he's way too rigid? Paul, the apostle, the guy that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. So if we're tight, we're in good company, right? The gospel's very narrow, and there are so many today who really don't get that. But it's always narrow. Jesus said it was narrow. The apostles preached it as narrow. It remains narrow when it, whether anyone acknowledges it or not. All Christians ought to have a thorough and robust knowledge of Scripture and its doctrines, but especially the elders and the deacons of local churches. They are the teachers and expositors of Scripture, the elders are. And they are its ministers of mercy, the deacons are. Nothing means more to them, to these officers, than Jesus Christ and the truth of his gospel. Yes, the divinely breathed forth truth of those words and sentences of the Bible are more important to them than their own lives. Or at least they should be. Thomas Cranmer, shortly after the Protestant Reformation long ago, Thomas Cranmer, because of fear of being burned to death by the Inquisition, he signed a confession with his own hand, denying the gospel and agreeing with the Pope and Rome's false gospel. After doing that, he was so convicted and felt so guilty about it that he had affirmed this on paper. He had affirmed things contrary to the truth that he eventually recanted that confession and he was eventually sentenced to be burned at the stake. And on his way to being burned to death, he said to the Pope, and this is a quotation, I denounce you as Christ's enemy and antichrist and all your false doctrines. And as the flames drew up around him, that, that stake he was tied to, he held out the hand that he had signed that confession with and died exclaiming, this unworthy right hand, this unworthy right hand. The truth of the Bible, it's life-giving, soul-saving doctrines. They're everything to the Christian, but especially to the elders and the deacons. And they swear to God that they will hold these truths immovably. And if at any time they move away from them, they're supposed to let their elders know in writing, 
I no longer believe this. I no longer believe that. I no longer believe what the confession says saving faith is. I no longer believe uh, the distinction between justification and sanctification. They're supposed to make that known to their sessions in writings. And oh, how many men have been willing to have hands laid on them who have taken these vows and made these promises only to brazenly break them in the face of God and incur his judgment for it. How many officers in local churches have sworn before God they believe our confession to be a faithful summary of what God has spoken in Scripture who had their fingers crossed behind their backs? It is better not to swear at all than to swear and not keep your oath. And a man of God would rather die and would forego all the pleasures of the world rather than tell a lie. Our Savior identified himself as the truth. And would to God that those who claim to be his disciples would imitate him and be truth-tellers themselves. Third oath. Do you approve of the form of government, the book of discipline, and the directory of worship of the Christ-reformed Presbyterian Church as being in conformity with the general principles of biblical polity? Now, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians fourteen forty, all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. There are rules and procedures that everybody agrees to in a denomination. And if you don't do that, you just have chaos. The Bible governs everything ultimately, but it does not give us detailed procedures on exactly how to examine candidates for the ministry. It doesn't tell us exactly what to say when, when people are ordained. It doesn't tell us exactly what to say at funerals or what to say at the Lord's Supper or how the meetings of elders or deacons are supposed to be run, etc. Churchmen have gathered together and written out the rules based on biblical principles and then they agree to follow those rules. If one minister refuses to follow those rules and goes rogue, they are to be admonished and then rebuked. If a denomination decides it's going to discard its rules and not follow them, well, there's not a whole lot you can do about that. Presbyterianism and church government in general is only as good as the integrity of the people that vow to follow it. Now, there are six basic marks of biblical church government that always stand over everything else that we do in the church. You see it out there in your handout? The six basic marks of biblical church government. Number one, the office bearers were chosen by the people. That's the first thing. We don't have bishops that appoint someone or a bishop that can just say, okay, you're going to move over to this church, I'm going to bring this guy over here, and so on and so forth. It is the congregation that makes those decisions. Number two, the offices of bishop and elder were identical. Always remember that. Bishops are elders, elders are overseers, overseers are bishops. They're just three ways of referring to the same office. Thirdly, in each individual church, there was always a plurality of elders. Now, I'm one of your elders, Jim and Roger, our elders. If they decided to resign this church, we'd have to call an emergency presbytery meeting and an additional elder would have to be appointed from another church to be part of a provisional session for this church because you don't have a church unless you have more than one elder. I don't care how talented, how brilliant someone may be, no one person is sufficient to govern the church. And I can't tell you, having served as a ruling elder for six years and been a teaching elder for 14 more, how many times I have on my way to session meetings gone, Lord, just make them all listen to me. I know exactly what we need to do. <laughs> and then you hear someone else that's older and wiser talk. And then on your way home, Lord, thank you that they did not listen to me. It would have been a disaster. You always need more than one elder. Always. Ordination is an act of presbytery, the plurality of elders. Everybody lays hands on people to ordain them. 
Fifthly, the privilege of appeal to the assembly of elders and the right of government exercised by them in their corporate character. You see that in Acts chapter 15. There's always appeal to the higher level, to the presbytery or to the regional church. Sixthly, finally, the only head of the church was the Lord Jesus Christ, which isn't as big of a thing with us because we don't have the Pope trying to, to claim lordship over our churches. But officers have got to get those things. You have to understand those six truths about church government before you take this vow. The entire form of government depends on those six basic principles. Officers also hold to the regulative principle of worship, which is the biblical notion that we are only to do in our worship services that which we see commanded or practiced in Scripture. That part of our Constitution, the directory of worship, follows this biblical truth. And the book of discipline also must be subscribed to. Now, what happens when there is conflict in churches? Well, the biblical steps have to be followed if it's interpersonal sin. We talked about that last time. If someone sins against someone else and they come to an elder or a deacon or come to me or anyone else in the church to talk about it, the first question you've got to ask them before you hear a single word that they have to say is, have you spoken to the person that did this yet? And if not, you should not listen to anything they have to say because they're not following the biblical pattern for discipline. If they do speak to the person who offended them and that person will not repent, then and only then can they speak of it with other witnesses who will then go back to that offending party together. Everybody is supposed to follow this, but especially elders and deacons. This is how we study and promote the peace and purity of our churches. Now, please hear me. Publicly spoken false doctrine is not a Matthew 18 issue. I have to tell you, in the PCA, I was positively amazed at how many people thought publicly spoken false teaching was a Matthew 18 issue. And again and again, my predecessor, Larry Ball, stood up a couple times at meetings going, guys, this has nothing to do with Matthew 18. If someone speaks false doctrine publicly, you have to refute it and respond to it publicly. It's not an interpersonal sin issue. So many today don't understand that. If someone speaks false doctrine or promotes false doctrine openly, they can be refuted and rebuked openly and publicly. Paul did that directly to the apostle Peter. Remember Galatians 2.11? Just listen to the word of God. Paul writing here, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the, the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, Paul did not violate Matthew 18 in any way here because Peter's not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel was a public sin. It was scandalizing people. It was leading others astray. It was not a private interpersonal matter. And therefore, Paul's rebuke was quick, quick and public. The word of God itself tells us how quickly should we deal with heretical teaching? Paul says in Galatians 2, 4, and 5, And this occurred because a false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour. 
that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Notice Paul did not, does not say. And once we heard that they were not being straightforward about the gospel, we formed a study committee that got back to us in three years. And then eight years later, we brought charges against them. Why didn't they do that? Why didn't they yield submission to this even for an hour? So the truth of the gospel would continue. Because he understood Galatians 5.9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You see false teaching, you see false gospels, you see false ideas, that leaven coming in, you got to get rid of it now, today. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. But it can't leaven the whole lump if it's identified quickly and dealt with quickly. And I'll tell you, Presbyterians are characteristically, characteristically super duper slow about everything. And I'm talking slower than the molasses in January. When there are serious departures from the faith, from the word of God. They have to be addressed quickly by ministers and elders who know and love the truth so that the sheep of Christ are protected from that evil leaven. Oath number four. Do you accept the office of ruling elder or deacon, as the case may be, in this church and promise faithfully to perform all the duties thereof and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your life and to set a worthy example before the church which God has made you an officer. I've done an entire sermon series on both offices, on elders and deacons, and this is a wonderful way the, the word of God, there's a wonderful way the word of God summarizes the duties of each office. They, they divide up the church work. And we saw it there in Acts chapter six. If you see verse four, the, the apostles, the elders said, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so the deacons took over the serving of tables and the physical needs of the church so that the elders could focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. Elders pray and minister the word. That's their primary duty in the local church. They teach the faith. They apply the word of God. They counsel the people, people of God. They shepherd the sheep of God that need their, their counsel and their help and application of scripture and so on and the various stages of life and all the different situations. Deacons help keep the elders focused on those sacred tasks by dealing with the physical needs of the congregation. Elders will frequently ask people if there's anything that they need help with, anything that the diaconate can do for you, anything that they could help you move or fix or, or whatever. Now, elders ought to be willing to help out with such things too. And deacons need to know the Bible and they need to be able to talk about the Bible because they too are ambassadors for Christ, just like every other Christian is. They need to be able to give a reason defense for the hope that is in them and apply the word of God to various situations. But the duties belonging to each office are the elder, the ministry of the word and prayer, deacon, mercy ministries in the church so the elders can focus on those other tasks. So when you agree, I'm going to execute the office of an elder, execute the office of a deacon, that's what you're agreeing to do. One of those two things. Oath number five. Do you promise subjection to your brethren? And then six, they really go together. <clears throat> Do you promise to strive for the purity, peace, and unity and edification of the church? Subjection means you will not go rogue and start doing your own thing or start on a campaign to take the church in a new direction. Elders and deacons always need to be in subjection to one another, in consultation with one another, and sitting before the word of God together, being guided together by the Holy Spirit speaking therein. My fellow elders here have helped me improve a great deal at everything I do. They help me stay balanced with regard to family, marriage, kids, ministry, the way I preach, etc. And I try to help them out as well. 
And we are always to be together in unity, in conversation, in prayer, before the word of God together as one body, praising one Lord, rejoicing that we're part of the Lord's church, recognizing that we are dependent for one another and that we need each other. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, this is one of last week's texts, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. That's, a, that's an admonition to me. Be submissive to one another. Be submissive to the congregation. Be submissive to your fellow elders. Be submissive to your deacons. All of us should try to be in subjection one to another, value one another, listen to one another. For example, let me give you an example. Let's say I suddenly decide after doing some studying, and I prom- this is not going to happen. <clears throat> Let, let's say I suddenly decide after some studying, we should only be singing psalms. No more hymns out of the Red Trinity hymnal. And I think that we shouldn't have musical instruments anymore either. And let's say I did some studying and my convictions become psalms only, no instruments. And I actually think it's wrong. It's sinful for us to sing hymns that are not psalms or to have instruments. If I get in the pulpit and start preaching that without telling my fellow elders about it, without seeking their guidance and their counsel, without letting anyone else know about it, even if I'm right about that biblically, which I'm not, I would be in direct violation of that vow. Even if I'm right, biblically, I would be violating that vow to be in subjection to my brethren. I'd be in direct violation of my vow to study the peace and purity of my church. If my convictions about anything like that suddenly changed and those changes were, were right and biblical and God-honoring, it would be a sin against my oath to go on a campaign in our church to teach those new convictions, even if they are right. That's a violation of the promise to be in subjection to my brethren in the Lord. And it would be a violation of my vow to study the peace and purity and edification of the church. Now the BCO goes on to say, The ruling elder or deacon having answered in the affirmative, the minister shall address to the members of the church the following question. So here's the vow that you take when someone is ordained to the office of elder or deacon. Or if you join our church and you become a communicant member here, you inherit this vow. Whether you've ever read it or not, you inherit it. Listen to it. Do you, the members of this church, acknowledge and receive this brother as a ruling elder or deacon? And do you promise to yield him that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which his office, according to the word of God and the constitution of this church, entitles him? Now, that's really just a restatement of your membership vows, but directed specifically to the man being ordained as an elder or a deacon. You promise to receive them to honor them in the office that they hold, to encourage them, and to obey them according to the word of God. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. Deacons are to help the elders stay focused on the ministry of the word and prayer by taking charge over the burden of the physical needs of the flock. What an incredible, glorious task that is indeed. The blood-purchased sheep of Christ are often sick, They're often in financial distress, destitute of the physical necessities of life, etc. What a duty, what an honor for the deacons to do that. As Acts chapter 6 said, the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you some men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. The word of God 
and taking care of the physical needs of the church are both essential. And notice the elders don't say we're too cool or we're too good to serve tables. They say that it would not be good for the church if either the word or tables or the physical needs were neglected. Both of those things are essential to the life of the church and to the credibility of the church's profession of faith in Christ to the world. Deacons perform absolutely essential duties, which are high, honorable, and glorious in the sight of Christ. Elders are to be devoted to the ministry of the word and to praying. They are called to shepherd the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for an elder to shepherd the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood? The passage we read in Acts 20, uh, verse 28 to 31. Listen to verse 29 there again. Paul says, here's why, here's why you got to do this, guys. For I know this, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now, I think many of us have a rather nostalgic view of shepherds of flocks and livestock that took place in this period of time. But I would venture to say probably, maybe this isn't totally true, but probably none of us here have ever had to do this kind of work to be a shepherd of a literal flock where you actually sleep in the fields and you have to be out there and constantly be watching the sheep in a pasture. And for most of my life, I have thought of shepherds as men in long robes who sat by campfires at night, slept in the fields, and they got a front row seat to the beautiful rolling hills to an angelic choir piece when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So being a shepherd looked pretty cool, pretty uneventful. Jesus talked about bad shepherds once, though. Remember what he said about bad shepherds? John 10, verse 12, a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. Shepherds over Jesus' church, over his blood-purchased sheep, listen please, are to run toward the wolf and chase it off or kill it. Good shepherds who love their flocks don't flee when a bear shows up, when a lion comes or a wolf comes to try to pick off one of the sheep. And here's a little snapshot of the sort of person that you need as an elder. A shepherd. Remember this, 1 Samuel 17, 34. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing has defied the armies of the living God. So allow me to summarize this for you. To be a shepherd, you have to be a bad dude to engage that kind of work. Soft, effeminate men cannot be shepherds. Soft, effeminate men are not going to chase after a bear that picked off one of the sheep. It's now oh, we'll cut our losses. It's just one. David went, not only delivered the sheep, that bear rose up against him and he killed it with his bare hands. You have to be ready to charge the wolves, the lions, the bears and protect the sheep from them. In fact, you swore to God that you would. 
Yes, you have to have compassion and patience and love with a love that covers a multitude of sins. But the fact is, Paul, speaking by the Holy Spirit, told those Ephesian elders, and he tells me, he tells all of you, wolves will come in, and they will not spare the flock. They will have no compassion on the sheep. He said, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. When deacons and elders work well together, the church is protected and the sheep of Christ will flourish. But I want to warn you, the battle never stops. It never ends. The savage, hateful, selfish, lying wolves will never cease to arise in the churches. And therefore, elders must always be on guard, always be watching. Deacons must always be on guard, always watching. The sheep of Christ must always be on guard, always watching. Always be as innocent as doves, but as wise as serpents. There are many men who are willing to take the title of elder and deacon. But there are very few who really want to shoulder the responsibilities and duties because they are very hard. And I want to highlight for you here at the end, the vow that you all either took when we were ordained to these offices, you took the vow to your elders, or you inherited it when you joined the church. Yes, you can inherit vows. This is one of the reasons I'm doing this series. When you joined this church, you inherited the vows this congregation made to its elders and its deacons and to its pastor. Please remember what you have made an oath to God to do. You swore this. Do you, the members of this church, acknowledge and receive this brother as a ruling elder or a deacon? Do you promise to yield him that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which his office, according to the word of God and constitution of this church, entitles him? I just want to highlight for you in closing that word encouragement. That's huge. Becoming a pastor, you know, a long time ago, it introduced me to a group of men, fellow pastors, fellow elders, fellow officers, that I would characterize them as having hearts of gold, backbones of steel, but feet of clay. I don't think I've ever been around men in my life who are more prone to discouragement than elders and pastors and deacons. You always feel a nagging sense of inadequacy and a sense that at any given moment you are letting someone down in some way, somewhere. Your ruling elders and your deacons feel the same way nearly all the time. Your elders and deacons are your elders. And your deacons. And they need your encouragement, your love, your support. And I would say to all of you, I wanted to thank you all for those notes that you wrote me on the 10th anniversary of coming here back in June. Reading those notes that day when I got home from church, that was a a healing experience for me. And I want to thank you all for keeping that oath that you either made or inherited when you joined the church to encourage me in the Lord. My final words to you all are just a request. Please pray not just for your elders and deacons, but for all elders and all deacons throughout the whole world. In the larger catechism, question 191, it asks the question, what do we pray for in the second petition, thy kingdom come? And that answer includes, one of the things that we are praying for is that God would furnish his church with all gospel officers. We're praying for the church throughout the world that God would give it the elders and deacons and pastors that they need. If Jesus does not give godly men to his church to be elders and deacons, the church won't have any. And that's why we're told to pray for that. We are just as dependent on Jesus for good men to be elders and deacons 
as we are for the food that we eat and for the water that we drink and for the air that we breathe. So let us never forget this. And so I exhort you, I ask of you, I beg of you, please pray for your elders, pray for your deacons. And I'm so thankful that you all are an encouragement to me and are an encouragement to us. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, help us remember these solemn oaths, these promises. If we're elders or deacons, we, we took these vows to faithfully execute the duties of the office that we hold, whose title that we hold. And your words very simple and clear on what those duties are. And we pray you'd help the congregation to remember their promise to the elders and deacons. Help us to labor, to be in subjection one to another, to give the honor to the offices, and to mutually edify and encourage one another so that the name of the Lord Jesus is lifted high and the world can see that he is indeed glorious and real. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.